Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Peter Freights, the inspiration for the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, recently passed away at the age of 34. The former Boston College basketball player was diagnosed with ALS in 2012 and helped create the Ice Bucket Challenge that raised not only awareness but funds for the disease. According to the ALS Association, more than 17 million people participated in the challenge and raised more than $200 million worldwide. The money raised by the Ice Bucket Challenge led to the discovery of five new genes connected to ALS and enabled the ALS Association to expand its clinical network and commit millions of dollars to research funding. Today, I'm here with Dr. Mary Sedaris, Medical Director of the ALS Center here at Hackensack Meridian Health, to talk us through this disease and the strides we have made since the Ice Bucket Challenge touched our news feeds. But first, before we dive into ALS, Dr. Sedaris, I wanted to see what made you choose a career in neurology and ultimately ALS? I was under the um, guidance of Dr. Dale Lang, who is um, an ALS specialist himself. And I really loved to see that ALS was not what I thought it was um, when I was doing my um, neurology residency that it wasn't just about diagnosing a patient and then, you know, moving on. There was really a lot that you could do to help an ALS patient living with ALS. And we saw a lot of ALS patients uh, in that one year of training. When I came here and I joined the private practice initially, um, it was very palpable that there was a real need uh, for patients with ALS living locally to get the care they need for to manage this disease. Let's take a step back. What is ALS for all of us who don't exactly know? So ALS uh, is a disorder that falls under the category of motor neuron diseases. Um, and uh, by default of that, what happens in patients with ALS is a degenerative uh, process where motor neurons, these, these are the nerves that control your movement, swallowing, breathing, um, talking, they start to die back to degenerate over time. Because of this, uh, patients typically will um, die from respiratory failure, um, from aspiration pneumonia, um, because muscles of breathing and swallowing eventually will get affected, which sometimes they're affected upfront in the disease, but sometimes they get affected later in the disease. So how does one get ALS? We don't know. That's a million-dollar question. So 90% of the patients who have ALS are actually sporadic. That means anybody can get it. Um, there is 10% that are considered familial, where there is a gene that propagates through families causing ALS. Uh, but uh, for the 90% of patients who get diagnosed with this disease, we don't have a causal uh, relationship with any specific factor. So since you don't have a, a cause or the only real way to see if you have ALS is possibly genetics, how is it even diagnosed? How would you know that you could possibly have ALS? 
Um, we rely heavily on uh, clinical diagnosis. So um, not only uh, in the absence of the genetic uh, findings for the 90% of patients with ALS, you rely on the clinical presentation and progression of symptoms over time. So patients have to present with certain symptoms followed by clinical exam findings and ultimately, that's how we reach the diagnosis. There is a lot of uh, blood work and imaging and sometimes biopsies that get taken. The purposes of, of, of these is not to diagnose ALS, but to exclude any mimickers that may make someone look like they have ALS, but they otherwise have another disorder or a treatable disorder. In patients with ALS, uh, typically they will present with weakness over time that initially is not painful. It is not associated with a tingling sensation or a pins and needles sensation or numbness. Um, and it is subtle, usually initially, it's subtle, and patients will compensate for it. So they'll blame it on, oh, I must have pulled a muscle, or I maybe have a pinch nerve in the back, or this or that. And actually, because of that, uh, sometimes it takes a while for patients to come to medical attention and get a diagnosis. Certainly, it is better to intervene early, uh, especially now, because we do have interventions that if you know implicated earlier can actually prolong survivor particularly when we start talking about the use of non-invasive ventilation or support of respiratory muscles uh, that has been shown to uh, prolong survivor in patients with ALS also nutritional support one of the common things that happen in ALS is patients will start losing weight and this is considered actually a poor prognostic factor so by educating the patients by making sure they have the proper support for um, from a nutritional standpoint and from a respiratory standpoint you can actually impact the course of the disease so are there any misconceptions about ALS uh, the biggest misconception in ALS is that not every ALS patient progresses at the same rate. So, you know, some patients will progress relatively quickly, but there are patients that will live much longer than the uh, average. The average is about two to five years of survival, but, you know, we have patients attending our clinic who are over 10 years with the disease. Wow. So... Um, uh, what you see in the movies is probably the very late image, and not everybody chooses to get to that stage. Um, some patients, um, uh, if you're referring to patients who are trached, for example, some patients choose not to uh, do the trach, and so they are, you will more likely see them uh, talking and, uh, uh, you know, uh, not engaging, frozen. not frozen and engaging in normal, uh, normal life. Uh, this is actually one of the biggest aims for uh, patients who attend our ALS clinic and ALS clinics across the country is to keep them as mobile and as functional uh, as they can for as long as they can. So I was reading about Peter's diagnosis, obviously, today's podcast is about it. And he, his family described it as the disease completely ravished his physical body, but his spirit and his soul continued to live on, and that his brain was functioning so well that his family could ask him yes and no questions and have him blink to answer. So it sounds like your body could be frozen, but certain aspects, whether it be your fingers or your, your eyelids or something, kind of react to your family. And I couldn't even imagine how awful that must have felt for Peter to be almost trapped. 
uh, speaking of muscles, yes, the eye muscles are actually one of the last muscles that get affected in the disease. And because of that, if you read the books and you see the movies about patients with ALS, you will see a lot of times they're communicating by blinking or using eye muscles. That's because they are the last set of muscles, one of the last set of muscles that get affected in the disease process. Um, not and, and, and not every patient with ALS has the luxury of having their full uh, cognitive capacity until the end of the disease um, because, in fact, uh, a large percentage of patients with ALS show evidence of uh, cognitive dysfunction of the frontotemporal type or frontal type. So, in fact, there is a relationship between frontotemporal dementia and ALS. Some patients uh, will have a combination of both of them, not just one of the diseases. Um, so every case is different. E every case of ALS is definitely different, not just in how, what is affected, but also how fast. The image is very different depending on the disease. And really, no two ALS patients progress the same or look the same. And just out of pure curiosity, I'm kind of switching gears. Is there any link to athletes and ALS? So reason being, both Peter and Lou Gehrig, who is one of the namesakes of ALS, were both baseball players. And in addition to them, there are football players, Orlando Thomas from the Minnesota Vikings, Stephen Gleason from the New Orleans Saints, Timothy John Green just announced he had ALS last year, and he's from the Atlanta Falcons. Um, it seems pretty ironic that so many athletes are affected by the disease. One of the um, actually uh, patients who patients who are uh, slightly higher risk of developing ALS include patients who are from an athletic background, um, also veterans. Uh, studies show that up to uh, fifty percent more likely for veterans to develop ALS compared compared to the uh, normal population. Um, and it is unclear exactly why. Uh, it wasn't uh, really restricted to people who are in combat. Um, it was across the uh, veteran spectrum. Um, in the case of uh, football players or soccer players or baseball players, um, there is a thought that it could be related to repetitive head trauma. Uh, but again, no definitive causal relationship has been established. Because now in football, concussion is a huge factor in the game. Correct. So I, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe that... Yes, I mean, it's been proposed, uh, and uh, there is definitely a link there. In fact, uh, um, you know, there is research going into that as well and looking into that as well, but there is no causal relationship that was established. It is interesting because, in general, the stereotypical um, patient... Uh, or the common patient who will present with ALS is a patient who comes from an athletic background. Even if they didn't play football or they didn't play soccer, uh, there seems to it seems to be that patients with ALS tend to be of a lower BMI. We always talk about obesity and uh, a risk of uh, cardiovascular disease and stroke. Um, in the case of ALS, it's actually the opposite. Patients with lower BMI who come from an athletic background, even if it's a runner, you know, no head trauma, really, they tend to be at a higher risk of, uh, for ALS. We don't know why. Um, so it's not, it's more than just having head trauma because even runners uh, with low BMIs are at the same risk. So when I first heard of the Ice Bucket Challenge, I heard how it was because the ice water simulates the effects of ALS on the body. So basically, 
pouring ice water over your head, shivers your body for a second, freezes all your neurons. Is there any truth to that? Um, I think it's more of an analogy to kind of uh, put yourself in the body of an ALS patient for a moment to to feel what they feel. Um, The truth is even what patients with ALS feel. A lot of people towards the end of the disease will complain of joint pain, mostly from frozen shoulders or frozen joints, uh, but some patients don't experience that. So what an ALS patient experiences is very variable from one patient to the other. I don't know if you maybe have the answer to this. So why is there such limited treatment options? So you were mentioning before it really depends on the disease and there's so much unknown. Is there a reason to that? Um, So one of the hardest things probably is doing clinical trials in patients with ALS. As I had alluded earlier, we were talking about uh, patients getting diagnosed and how sometimes they don't come to medical attention right away. On average, a patient by the time they get diagnosed will take about a year from them to from symptom onset. Now, the clinical trials typically uh, want to see patients who have had two years of onset and a specific number in terms of uh, respiratory function. And those two variables exclude a lot of people from eating, even getting involved in clinical trials. If you are unable to get people involved in clinical trials, it is very difficult to find a treatment. So this is one of the probably biggest hurdles for drug development and treatment, finding treatment in patients with ALS. We are getting better at doing research in general in ALS. So one of the biggest uh, things that are going on with ALS right now is the platform clinical trial. It's an innovative way uh, to do clinical trials in ALS. It has been used in the past in, uh, in the field of cancer. It is a really good way to uh, develop drugs quickly. Uh, So it actually does a few things. Number one, it cuts down the ratio of placebo to uh, active uh, patients who are actually on the drug. Um, because what happens is you have a number of patients starting the clinical trial, and you don't only have one drug, but you can have multiple drugs being tested all at the same time, and you only need one placebo group because the clinical trial is starting off by uh, a number of drugs at the same time. So the ratio of placebo to treatment uh, is much smaller. The turnover and the cost of the clinical trial is much less than a conventional clinical trial. And uh, the initiative to to do platform clinical trial was actually heavily funded by the ALS Association and by the Northeast ALS Consortium. Uh, We are in the process of uh, of, uh, uh, starting the clinical trial. The last I heard, it should be available to recruit by the end of March, beginning of April. Oh, that's very soon. Yes. um, It is really pioneered by uh, Mass General, but uh, there are multiple sites across the United States. And we will be looking forward to share this news with our patients. We are already uh, kind of gearing our patients who are newly diagnosed to um, look into it and get involved if they can afford to travel and be involved. Um, But that's one way to really improve the way we do clinical trials and come up with a treatment. It was as a result of the ice bucket challenge and the awareness that was raised really quickly uh, that the funding became available, the 
patients are more educated about clinical trials, and we are now seeing the effect of the ice bucket challenge. This is probably one of the best times to do ALS research since ALS was diagnosed. So hopefully the stigma uh, of ALS will also change. Oh, I 100% agree. And now that it's really on the forefront, and with the ice bucket challenge, it really just brought it all together. Definitely. I have one last question for you. Well, sure. two last questions okay. for you. Did you participate in the ice bucket challenge? I did not. No. <laughs> I didn't get invited. Oh, man. Yes. So we're going to have to come back. Oh, God. <laughs> and participate with you in the ice bucket challenge. I will do it. Absolutely. So more to come on that. And anything I missed today, is there anything else you wanted to share about ALS? Um, probably just to highlight how much the research is changing in ALS, our understanding of the disease. We have uh, a lot more now biomarkers. So because of uh, we know that no two ALS patients are the same, uh, the research is also focusing on biomarkers to see why n- two different patients will react differently to two to, to a drug and uh, which patients should receive drug A versus drug B. Um, uh, it's an exciting time to be part of ALS right now. It really is from a clinician standpoint, but also for patients because they have a lot more hope now than they did in the past. Thank you so much for sharing today. Thank you. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. That's all for today. Until next Wednesday, thanks for listening. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.